What a great truth we're just saying, isn't it? That we can be assured of our salvation and that that has become our story. And that is our song. That's the song we sing, right? We don't sing the songs that the world sings anymore. We sing the song of our great salvation in the Lord Jesus. Uh, So if you uh, would, uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 6. As is our normal practice, uh, the Sunday sermon comes from our sequential study of the book of the Bible uh, in its context, precept upon precept. This morning we're continuing our study of the book of Acts, picking up in uh, chapter 6 and verse 8. After we pray, we'll read the text under examination, and then we'll divide the passage for our understanding and for application. So if you would uh, bow your hearts with me and pray. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning according to your mercy and your grace. We come as children, robed in the righteousness that is not our own, but robed in the righteousness that is Jesus Christ. We pray for the ministry and the mission of Ben and Mary Grimm this morning. Lord, we ask for your favor upon them as they serve the people of Papua New Guinea. We pray for uh, their practical needs and the working out of the spiritual matters that you have them uh, located there to do. We ask for grace this morning to illuminate the passage to our minds, to inflame our hearts, and to move our will to obedience. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as you are uh, able... Would you please stand for the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of the Lord from Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those of Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Chapter 7, verse 1, And the high priest said, Are these things so? This is God's word. You may be seated. In our study last time, we saw that the growth of the church uh, brought the potential of being hindered by a threat to disunity uh, through the neglect of service to all its members, uh, which left the apostles alone to remedy that. That would certainly have led to a neglect of the word of God and prayer. So they uh, raise up or call for the church to raise up those who would remove obstacles to the ministry of the word uh, and prayer. 
Well, we concluded last week that after the servants of the word were appointed, that God's growth program in the early church was prayer and the ministry of the word. These internal threats to the community of faith, see, they found their solution in the main thing. And the main thing is the plain thing, which is the word of God and prayer. That is God's church growth program. This morning in our Sunday school class, we talked about uh, growth in the church, discipleship and growth. The growth program for disciples of Jesus Christ is the ministry of the word and prayer. And so uh, we saw that last week in uh, that text. Um, we also saw that the word of God in prayer uh, remained the center of faith and practice uh, in the early church. And as the early church was obedient in love to remove obstacles uh, such as prejudices and uh, preferential treatment and then neglect, that the church uh, continued then, each one doing its part to build itself up in love. So in today's passage, we're going to look at an external threat to the Christian community, and that is animosity toward the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll see that, that though the world may be uh, opposed uh, to the plan for the Christian, it remains the same program, is that the ministry of the word and prayer is our answer. And the scriptures give the faithful in Jesus Christ a guarantee. Now, we also sang of a guarantee of the assurance of salvation, but the Word of God does give us a guarantee as we relate to the world. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, it says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's not the guarantee that you kind of put on the refrigerator magnet, right? Put it up there to remind yourself. But the truth of the matter is, is that if we desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus, the world will be opposed. I will argue from our text this morning that for the sake of Christ, believers will find themselves in a world of opposition. Christians will be falsely maligned, will be accused of falsely of being narrow-minded bigots, for proclaiming the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the only way to live in the presence of God in a pleasing manner. So let us just dive in to the text this morning in verses 8 and 9 and see the nature of the characters involved in what we're looking at uh, today. Verse 8, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs amongst the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those of from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. So three synagogues are represented here. One is the synagogue of the freedmen, and the freedmen, as it was called, were those who had been prisoners of the Romans, and now they've been released one was comprised of Cyrenian and Alexandrian Jews. And the third one mentioned was Jews from Cilicia and Asia. See, the Jews had divided themselves according to regional affiliation. This is the type of disunity we just discussed in the earlier part of chapter 6 that led to the neglect 
of the Greek-speaking Jews in the church, right? So the Hellenists had to rose up and said, hey, we're being neglected in the distribution. The Hebrew-speaking Jews in the church were being taken care of. The widows were being taken care of. But the Greek-speaking ones were not. But this natural inclination to separate themselves by language was apparent here, uh, even in in the Jewish synagogue. So these these three synagogues, they're separated from Hebrew-speaking synagogues, but they are united in their opposition to God's appointed servant, Stephen, whom the church had just appointed as a deacon or a servant of God's word. Stephen, desiring to remove obstacles from the preaching of the word is a and, and prayer, he is a man committed to godliness in himself and in the church. He's opposed and he's threatened by the religious community. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking, verse 10. So here they are, they're in opposition to him, but they couldn't withstand his wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Jesus had made a promise earlier, remember, to the disciples? Uh, And this here is manifested in Stephen. It's manifested in the man who is full of grace and full of faith, a man full of the Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 21, verse 15? He says, for I will give you a uh, a mouth and a wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or to contradict. This is fleshed out right here. Right? So although they, they're, they're coming in opposition to him, uh, the wisdom of God spoken through Stephen could not be withstanded. The representatives of the Greek-speaking synagogues here find arguing with the wisdom of Stephen and the Holy Spirit of power with which he spoke, they find it futile. It is futile. In the reprobate mind of the Greek-speaking Jews, uh, their flesh being at war with the spiritual wisdom that's proclaimed in the gospel through Stephen. To discern the things of God, you see, the flesh is no help. The flesh is no help at all. So they find the wisdom that Stephen is speaking with, I can't, we can't dispute it. We can't dispute the spirit with which he speaks because they are those who are, are, are battling uh, Stephen with the flesh. And still, Stephen is a man empowered with the Holy Spirit and the wisdom of God. And it cannot be thwarted. And see, they couldn't even discern the things of God because the flesh there is of no help. And so to resist the Holy Spirit, it is futile. Paul writes uh, of this futility in the unconverted to in the letter to the Ephesians. In chapter 4, verse 17, he says, Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. He's talking about there is a difference between those who have been transformed into Christ and those who have not. When you speak of spiritual truths to those who have not been converted, right? they are trying to reason and they find themselves futile. It is a futile argument. They come to the end of it. They cannot withstand the wisdom and the Spirit of God. The mouth of wisdom, by the way, has been given to Stephen here and for the occasion of such divine utterance. It is a bold speaking of the truth of Jesus Christ, such that what he says is of a proper judgment. And the hearers are futile to resist, and their judgment cannot measure up to the judgment of the spiritual man. In 1 Corinthians 2.15, it says, The spiritual person judges all things, but he is to be judged by no one. That which the Spirit speaks through his servant Stephen to the Greek-speaking representatives here of their synagogues is the wisdom of God. He speaks forth the wisdom of God. 
The wisdom of God in the gospel cannot be thwarted by the wisdom of man. See, in the end, every knee will bow underneath the wisdom of God spoken in the gospel. In Romans 14 11, it says, As it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. I think one of the hindrances that the church faces in our proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we studied a few weeks ago, is that we often desire the results uh, of our proclamation and we long to see the fruit. And we must, must remember what Acts 13.48 tells us. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. We have to have our confidence that the wisdom of God in the gospel will not fail to save the people that God calls. God will never fail in calling those who he's calling to salvation. It will not fail. We have to have confidence in that. For the sake of Christ and the proclamation of the gospel and your desire to live a godly life, though, you will be, you will be falsely accused and persecuted. But the Spirit of God guaranteed to us in Christ is that He will give us a mouth of wisdom and that none of our adversaries will be able to contradict or withstand that. They may resist you in the moment as you proclaim the truth of the gospel because, see, you're not seeing the fruit, right? And they seem to be resisting you. They cannot withstand the wisdom of God. And in the end, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and every knee will bow down before God. It is futile to resist the Spirit. And we have to have that kind of confidence as we proclaim the truth. We can expect that the world will be disunited. And it is, isn't it? It is disunited around us. And yet, at the same time, we can see that the world around us will be united in opposition to our testimony. For the sake of Christ, uh, they will be uh, united against us. But we can remain bold in the power of the Holy Spirit to remain steadfast in our witness to Christ with confidence in the truth. And confidence in this truth that 1 Corinthians 1, 18-25 tells us. For the, uh, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and, and, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Who is, who is the one who is wise? Who is the scribe? Who is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews and it is folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Do we have that confidence as we proclaim the gospel to a world who is absolutely opposed? Do we have that, cause, uh, that confidence that the wisdom of God is greater than the wisdom of the world? I think if we had that confidence, we would be much more bold, wouldn't we? If we were just confident that God's plan cannot be thwarted, though it is foolish for the world to come against the wisdom of God. It is foolishness to come against the Spirit of God. And they, they may be contrary to us, but in the end, they will bow their knee before God. We would love it if, if those who we proclaim the truth would bow their knee right now in front of us. 
Like, do it now, right? You will one day, but do it now. Do it now. Verse 11 of our text. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and they seized him, and they brought him before the council. And they set up false witness who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. The men of the synagogues, when faced with the futility of resisting the Spirit, when faced with the futility of resisting the wisdom of the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed by Stephen, who was the servant of God, a man full of grace, a man full of faith, a man full of the Holy Spirit, they do the only one thing that is left to them. Lie, lie, and lie some more. And then secretly, deceptively, they gather support in making false claims that are couched in half-truths. They encourage witnesses to give false testimonies in condemning Stephen. The Greek-speaking Jews separated from the Hebrews, from the Hebrew-speaking Jewish leadership. Now they seek to find them, to have them join in in their opposition to what Stephen has spoken to them. They stir them up in opposition. They want to bring them into the fight. The hatred of God and the gospel brings unity among strange bedfellows, doesn't it? Seemingly, in our society, the free expression of belief is celebrated, isn't it? I believe, if I said in the world, I believe that I am other than what my genetic biological makeup is, I'm okay. I'm okay to believe that. But if I say there is only one way to please God and be saved, and that is to bend your knee before Jesus Christ who died for sinners, there's only one way to do that. Well, I and you are pariah. And all of those who have this free-thinking, free-flowing idea that anything goes will come together and say, no, you are wrong. See, the hatred of God brings unity among these strange bedfellows. But the world seems to unite in the suppression of the truth of God, doesn't it? The suppression of the revealed righteousness of God who by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. What is it that united the Greek-speaking Jews and the Hebrew-speaking leadership together? What was it about the Spirit-filled wisdom of God spoken by God's servant Stephen that offended the religious community? You might remember from our study in Acts uh, chapter 4, when the leadership saw the boldness with which the apostles spoke, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And when they said that, this is not as if now all of a sudden for the first time these Jewish leaders realized that Peter and John uh, were those who followed Jesus around for three and a half years. They knew this fact from the outset, but what astonished them at that time was the boldness, the blunt, confident assurance spoken clearly and without ambiguity of Peter and John, and that this was the same blunt, confident assurance that was clearly spoken by Jesus. 
the confident uh, speech of Jesus that they were saying the same thing was that Jesus had done the will of the Father perfectly. He had done the work of the Father perfectly in contrast to the Jewish leadership and their adherence to their traditions or their understanding of the law. Now here in our passage, they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against his holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs Moses delivered to us. What united the Jews in opposition is the same thing they opposed Jesus for. Jesus taught that the locus or the center for the people of God was in himself. That faith in Jesus as Lord and Christ was now the locus or it was the, to define this, the concrete, identifiable, exact location of that which beforehand had been more of an abstract, more of a shadow. Jesus is the identifiable, concrete locus of acceptable worship that the temple represented in an abstract way was, was a shadow of the thing to come. This is what this accusation really is about. That he had said that Jesus is the temple. That the temple was in Christ and in Christ alone, that he was the center of worship. That, that the, the temple was merely uh, an abstract way to show uh, a shadow of things that were to come. And this teaching was from Jesus himself. And when Jesus taught this, he was met with opposition from the leadership, and that led them to execute him. Stephen's accused of teaching the same thing here. Listen to the accusation against Jesus in Mark 14.58. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another one not made with hands. And again in chapter 15 of Mark's gospel, in verse 29, he says, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. What really raised their ire against Jesus is by his own words that he recorded, that are recorded in John's gospel in chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus answered them, answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He was teaching in John's gospel, that which the temple represents finds its reality in me. I am the temple of God. I am the locus of God-pleasing worship to the exclusion of any man-made place or any tradition. I am the fulfillment of the law of Moses. I am the realized temple, the reality of all things alluded to. The presence of God in the temple has now been fully revealed in Jesus Christ. And see, the good witness of Jesus Christ here who is filled with the Holy Spirit of God, is faithful to say the same things about Jesus that Jesus said of himself. If you say the same things about Jesus Christ that Jesus said about himself, you will be a faithful witness. We don't have to say anything new. We don't have to come up with a creative way to be a good witness of Jesus Christ, do we? We have to come up with some program or some way to be taught how to do this. We just say what Jesus said. What Jesus said of himself, we say that. That's what Stephen has done here. He just said that Jesus is the temple. Did Jesus say he was the temple? Yes. Jesus said that he was the temple, that the temple finds its fulfillment in me. 
And the good servant of Jesus Christ does just that. Just says what Jesus said of himself. Stephen spoke of Christ as the temple of God who replaced the shadow. And further, that the church of Jesus Christ, who is born of the Spirit, is the manifestation of that temple on earth. It is not the one built by human hands. The system of worship for Israel was associated with the symbols of God's presence, wasn't it? The Ark of the Covenant, the Tabernacle, and the Temple. They were designed to be a means by which the people of God would acknowledge and live in the presence of a holy and royal God. And we see throughout the Scriptures the failure of Israel to engage with God in the way that He required. It brought upon them terrible judgment and exile. Yet through the prophets in the Holy Scripture, we see a forward vision of renewed worship in a new and restored temple. Stephen's testimony was that Jesus Christ is the complete, new, restored temple of God. Replacing the temple built by human hands. And the presence of God is manifest in the people of God. The church of Christ, the manifestation of the temple on earth. Jesus proclaimed the coming of this day. And he also said that this day, as he's proclaiming its coming, has already dawned on them just with his presence there in John chapter 4. In verse 21 through 24 as he's speaking to the woman at the well, he says, Our fathers, she says, Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Stephen's accused of saying, the temple of God has been replaced. The center of worship has been replaced. The law of Moses has been fulfilled. The presence of God has left the building. The center of the new religious community is not in your institution. It is not in your buildings. It is not vested in your leadership. It is not vested in a new ideal or a new way of life. But the center of the religious community fully rests in the person of Jesus Christ, who by virtue of His death for sin and God having raised Him from the dead, He is the King on the throne who has bestowed the good gift of the Holy Spirit upon His people that they may live in the presence of God in acceptable, true worship. Christian, the world opposes that gospel unity because our message is the same as Stephen's. Our message is the same as Christ's. And what is the ultimate boiling it down to what our message is? I believe it's this. It's not about you. The world doesn't want to hear that. They'll be united against us when we say it is not about you. When we say it, it is Christ alone. It's not about your pious sacrifice. It is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. The presence of God is with His people by the Spirit. The evidence of this truth proclaimed by Stephen 
we will see here, is evident on his face. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that the face was like the face of an angel. It was abundantly apparent to all who witnessed what Stephen was about, that he had been in the presence of God. That he had been in the presence of the Spirit. The council here, they describe Stephen's face as having the appearance of an angel. It's another way of something, uh, saying that something of the glory of God's presence is upon him. Remember when Moses went up to the mountain to converse with God in Exodus 34, it was apparent that he had been with God. In chapter 34, verses 29 through 35, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to him, and Aaron and all of the elders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded uh, them all that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished with speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went to speak with him. There's an accusation here that Stephen desires to throw out the law of Moses, to destroy the traditions of men, to undermine the authority of the leadership. But in reality, what we see that Stephen is guilty of He's guilty of being a faithful witness of Jesus Christ. That's what he's guilty of. He's guilty of saying the same things about Christ that Christ said about himself. He's guilty of proclaiming the same truths. Stephen is guilty of proclaiming that Jesus Christ is the center of worship. And in him alone, there's access to the presence of God. Chapter 7, verse 1, And the high priest said, Are these things So, how will you answer the opposition? I would ask us this. Do people even ask you if your faith in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ is true? Do people even ask you, is this true? Are you a faithful witness in word and in deed? Or is your Christianity undercover? Is your testimony true? When the opposition comes, and it is guaranteed, 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And since we know this, that those who desire to live a godly life are obedient to the great commission, command of Christ to make disciples? We know that that is a desire of the godly. And if we desire to make disciples of Jesus Christ, we know this, that there will be opposition. Jesus tells us, don't be concerned how you'll answer in that day. Luke 21, 15 again says, for I will give you a mouth of wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. 
In Luke chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, he says, Jesus says, and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, don't be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. To conclude this, I would say this, if you live for the sake of Christ, expect opposition. If you are a Spirit-filled, born-again believer for the sake of Christ, expect this, the power and the wisdom of God is greater than the world who opposes you. The power and the wisdom of God is greater than the world. So what do we do with this going forward? I'd say it's quite simple. Say the same things of Christ that Christ says of himself. 